Welcome to the Big Fan Theory. Alex, welcome to the Big Fan Theory. Hello, Bob. Great to have you here. Uh, I've been a, been a big fan of yours for a while since since reading your book a few years back. But uh, uh, for, for the benefit of everyone listening, um, can you tell us in 30 seconds or less who you are, what you do, and why you're qualified to talk about what we're going to talk about? Oh, um, um, well, in a word, serendipity. <laughs> the coming together of several strands are completely unplanned. Um, I'm a geologist. I had a professional career in geology, long since retired, so I have the geology. I've for long been a gardener, grown my own fruit and vegetables, and I've always been curious about how it works, what does the soil do, what is soil, how do the things grow. And as part of that, I've grown vines and made wine for many decades. That's taught me a lot about the hands-on viticulture and, and winemaking. I've got this year's vintage fermenting as I speak. So that's great. And um, I've always visited vineyards, asked questions. And all the time in these different strands, I was accumulating knowledge without thinking about it. Now, suddenly in the last couple of decades, vineyard geology has become so fashionable. Everybody's talking about it and sometimes saying outrageous things. And I'm thinking, well, I'm in an unusual position with these different strands, bringing them together, I can deal with this. I, I, and so uh, that's why I wrote the book, because I was in a position to bring that knowledge to bear. And so really, it's, as I say, serendipity. <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, I think we might, let's just dive straight in with the question then. Um, I mean, this is kind of the point of the book, I suppose. Uh, to what extent does geology of a vineyard affect the final flavour of a wine? Ah, well, that's um, that's a great question, Bob, and uh, as I say, very topical, very fashionable. Well, we read about vineyard geology all the time in, in the magazines, on the web, how important the soil is for the wine. There are plenty of wines named after things geological. There are even restaurants, I've seen the menus, that that have the wine lists categorized not by, say, grape type or wine style or country, but by geology. You know, do you want to drink an alluvial wine or a volcanic wine or a limestone wine? Wow, there's all this geology all around us. And as a geologist, I should be jumping for joy about this. My subject, so important for the taste of wine. Wow, that's, uh, that's great. But I'm not, because here comes the but. I am troubled by all this. On the one hand, none of these claims, these assertions, all this whiny stuff I've just touched on, ever says how it works. How does the geology do it? What's going on? What is it about, say, granite that brings something special to wine that other rocks don't? It's never said. It just is. And as a scientist who wants to understand how things work, well, that, that's troubling. And on the other hand, if I do come at it with a scientific understanding of how things work, it's very difficult to see how it can work, how 
how geology in the vineyard can work to quite this extent. It's part of the picture, certainly in the vineyard, certainly for the growing vine, but how it can influence wine to this extent, I just can't see it. And so, uh, and reluctantly, I have to conclude that the evidence makes me say that it's all rather over-exaggerated. It sounds good, it's great, people like it, and I wish it were so, but really, I'm afraid the influence of vineyard geology is uh, overhyped. That's the context, Bob, but that's, that's the overall situation. Uh, why shall I go with this? Shall I outline what what I think is happening? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, I mean, I suppose it'd be interesting to find out, I mean, uh, just as a knee-jerk, why do you think people jump on it so much? Because I've had this with a number of sommeliers, winemakers, all sorts, who can tell you the bedrock, but they can't tell you what rootstocks they use, and they can't tell you a load of other stuff yeah, yeah, that yeah. definitely does make a difference. Like, it is quite fashionable. What what do you think spurned it, or is it just because oh, it sounds good? Oh, I think there's all, oh, there's all kinds of things going on. Uh, I mean, people like the idea. It sounds good, and it's it's a backlash against anonymous industrialised foodstuff. I mean, here we are. We've not only got provenance, but we're linking the wine to the good earth, you know. Well, how how topical is that? You know, it just sounds good. People just run with the idea. It presents marketing opportunities. I mean, if you think about it, this vineyard Georgia thing, it's about the only thing that can't be replicated around the world by other winemakers. Our geology is unique. Well, yeah, it's a it's a fair claim. Not say so what. But um, it, it gives all kinds of marketing possibilities. And um, there's another reason that I, I'll, I'll defer for the moment. Maybe I'll come back to it. But uh, I think they're all, well, basically people like the idea. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy to run with it rather than step back and think, oh, wait a minute, does it really work like that? It, it's, a, it's a lovely thought. It's romantic. It sounds good. <laughs> Fair enough. So, well, there, but there, there are obviously in your book that you go through various different things that does that do make difference, like um, drainage and a load of other bits. I mean, do you want to take us through, you know, what you think is going on and what the proof is for ways geology does have an impact? Yeah, in the vineyard, as I say, it is very much part of the picture, at least as a starting point. In principle, there are lots of, I would say, rather minor ways in which geology can come into it. The soil colour, for example, which depends on the bedrock and its colour, what geological minerals are there, that can affect heat retention, light reflectance and things like that. I say minor because it's only going to be of significance in the more marginal grape ripening areas. Most vineyards have enough sunlight, enough warmth, but there are places where things like that can be important. So there are a number of these kinds of factors, but the two big ones are nutrient supply, nutri essential nutrients for the vine, and as you just mentioned, drainage, the water situation. Uh, essentially, the nutrients come from the bedrock and it's breaking down to yield the constituent elements, some of which, a few of which, about 14 of them, are essential for the vine to photosynthesize. And while in practice these tend to come from the humus in the soil, the organic fraction, year on year, fundamentally they originate from the geology. So there's the nutrition. 
And then there's the water. On the one hand, you need good drainage. All vines need good drainage. And yet you have to have some way of conserving sufficient water to see the vine through the usually quite dry ripening season. So there has to be some clay there which can store water or, or little holes, porosity as we say, to keep enough water to see things through. And that's the big one because the water does influence how the grapes swell or don't swell and therefore which chemicals, what we call flavor precursor chemicals develop in the grape. And so eventually could influence the wine character. But I've got to quickly add a couple of caveats. I did say in principle, uh, no particular rock type has a monopoly on any of this. Most rocks can do the business. I mean, drainage, say, well, granite soils tend to be well-drained, loose, sandy sort of soils. Volcanic soils are well-drained usually. Limestone soils certainly are well-drained. Slaty, slaty scree soils, very well-drained. Gravel is well, you know, so <laughs> lots of different uh, kinds of geology can do things. And the other point is, and this is why I say starting point in principle, if these properties aren't right, then the grower, as far as he or she can, changes them, modifies them. Drainage, you know, if the drainage isn't good enough, puts in drains. That's what farmers do, <laughs> you know, put in drains. And conversely, if the water supply isn't quite enough in the growing season, irrigate. Most of the world's vineyards are irrigated, quite a sophisticated subscience now, getting the irrigation just right to make the grapes grow as you want. So although the geology is the starting point for that, it's kind of overridden, as it were, by manipulating these factors. And same with the nutrients. I mean, if the nutrition's not right, well, the grower will see the symptoms and the vine leaves and things and change it. We will we'll correct it. So one way or the other, the vine gets to grow well, irrespective of the starting geology, because it's overridden in practice by the grower manipulating things. So yeah, it's part of the picture. Uh, it comes into things, uh, but perhaps not as important as people think in the vineyard. Now, how the geology goes through to the affect the final wine, well, that's where I have problems. As I indicated, it may affect wine character, how concentrated the flavor chemicals are, say, but this whole idea that you can taste the geology in the wine, that I'm getting slate, I'm getting minerals, I'm getting granules, I mean, that, um, that's not going to work scientifically, uh, sadly. But so that's the, that's the answer of, of, of some relevance in the vineyard. The grower will want to know his soils. It will, as you said, influence his choice of rootstock and management and so on. Uh, carrying through to tasting notes. Whoa, that's where I have to step back and um, raise my eyebrows. Fair enough. Well, uh, well, let's the, let's talk a little bit about nutrition then, if it's if it's right. So, can you give us a bit of um, an overview about how different, um, you know, soil and rock types give different nutrition? Um, a bit of a definition and explanation of what cation exchange capacity is, um, you know, and how uh, what's going on in the soil there. Yeah, 
I think we should always bear in mind, and we tend to forget this, that essentially we get carried away by the soil and stuff. Vines, like other plants, grow through photosynthesis. So it's the sunlight that's the key driver, and it gives the energy to the vine to take in carbon dioxide from the air, draw up water from the soil, and from the three elements therein, carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, that's what the vine makes itself with. That's what the grapes are made of. You know, wine is well over 99% carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. And all these nutrients think they're a very tiny part of things. So uh, potassium is, well, nitrogen is the big one, which doesn't come from the rocks, it comes from the humus. Potassium is the big uh, mineral contributor, but even that, not uh, very much. The rest of them, and in total there are about 14 of these inorganic elements, mainly metals, that have to be present to enable the photosynthesis to go, to enable these um, carbon dioxide water things I just mentioned, driven by sunlight. Nevertheless, tiny amounts, parts per million, parts per billion, of things like manganese, copper, iron, uh, are required to make the things happen. So tiny quantities. Most rocks, and humus certainly in the soil, that tiny organic fraction, can provide the nutrients needed. And as I say, in practice, if something does go wrong, then the grower will correct it. Although different rocks have different compositions and different concentrations of these elements, that doesn't matter really. It's the availability to the vine through the rootstocks that matters. And that depends on pH and depends on all kinds of factors. It's the accessibility and that might not relate directly to the geology. And in any case, the, the roots, the grapevine, has quite sophisticated mechanisms of selecting and trying to balance its nutrient uptake to the optimal value required. So quite how much there is in the geology isn't all that directly relevant because the vine takes what it needs. And as I say, if that goes awry for some reason, then the grower will see symptoms and correct it. He will chuck in magnesium sulfate or more compost or something or spray something on the leaves to correct some deficiency. And so one way or another, the, the, the vine gets those tiny amounts of nutrients it needs, irrespective of the starting rock. That's the way I see it. And as I say, in practice, year on year, it, it, the nutrients are coming from the humus. The breakdown of the bedrock weathering, the acting of um, air and rainwater and the like, is far too slow to provide a new crop of nutrients every year. It's the recycling of the organic material. Last year's leaves and prunings and pumice and perhaps um, weeds or um, cover crops between the vine rows decaying down and recycling the nutrients. That in practice is where the uptake is coming from. So again, the geology is just in the background. It's the ultimate source of the nutrients way back. But in practice, as I'm trying to outline, 
not all that important for for what the vine ends up being like. Does the geology have an impact on things like mycorrhizal um, symbiosis yes. or anything like that? Yes. Now the whole microbiology thing. Now the, the geology can, I think I said, be be of influence indirectly. And here's one way: there is increasing evidence that different little microbiota like different minerals with different chemistries and so yes we're still learning quite how the geology may influence these things so there may be a new importance of geology in that but it will be an indirect one because it is the microflora that's doing the business i mean it's like what i said about the soil color yeah, the geology is relevant in that way, pale soil, dark soil, but it's actually the ultraviolet light that's doing it, but people don't like to talk about ultraviolet light intensities and things, and that's not sexy. So we just talk about the soil color, but it's not, it's not a direct thing. It's the geology influencing something else. And yeah, the whole microbiology thing, the yeasts in the air, in the soil, and how the two link up, yeah, this might be a, a much bigger thing than we've realised so far. Now, I know you said none. There is no like a, a geology or soil type that's got a monopoly. Are there any particularly bad forms of soil type or anything that you would recommend anyone not look at in a in a vineyard? Well, as I said, drainage is 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 important. <laughs> the cliche is that vines don't like wet feet, so you have to have well drained soil. So if you have a very clayey flaggy soil that's poorly drained, that's not going to work. Might just get by on a hill slope, but <laughs> if it's on a valley bottom or something like that, then no, the vines are going to be very unhappy. So any rock that breaks down to give a lot of clay isn't, isn't going to be a, a good situation. But providing it's not too clay, then you're all, you're okay because, as I said, you, you can put in in drains. One of the famously more clayey regions is Pomerol um, in France. There, famously clay, the blue clay of Chateau Petrus and things. But it's not that clay. A lot of the good chateaus are up on ridges, little hilltops, little knolls, and so that helps the drainage. And in any case, as I understand it, even those top chateaus there have drains. They've put in drains centuries ago. And I understand that, say, even Chateau Petrus has electric pumps to click into action should it be needed. So even that somewhat clayey soil um, can be manipulated to, to grow the grapes as, as they want them. But if there's more clay and it's just a claggy soil, then and a number of different rocks can give that, slate can, say, volcanic soil can, then, then that would not be a good situation. So the drainage is the key. You've got to have decent drainage. So because, well, places like Petrus and etc., they always bang on about the, what is it, the clay button of Pomerol. Do you reckon that's more, yes. is that more marketing spiel than than reality no i think it's based in reality um there's something about the overall situation there <laughs> not sure we want to get into terroir but the overall uh, interaction of all the elements there gives this wonderful uh, vine growing situation to give those particular rocks so the drainage the natural setting 
Uh, and the fact is on the, the knoll, the button and that, it's all part of a bigger picture which comes together at places like that to make this wonderful wine. But the actual role of the clay itself, I'm unclear what that is. I mean, it's providing the nutrients for the wine. Well, so are other rocks. But um, so I, again, I think it's the, the, the geology being singled out as this key factor it comes into it. But it's the overall setting that um, is what's relevant to those um, particularly good wines. Now, I wanted to ask a little bit about soil pH um, and how that relates to geology. Well, actually, let's just start there. Like, how does soil pH relate to geology and, then, and what can people do about it? Oh, um, well, it's the uh, carbonate. A bicarbonate is the big influence on pH on soil. So if you've got a lot of carbonate material in the soil, you will tend to get high pH soils. Well, so-called calcareous soils, of which limestone is the obvious example, limestone is almost wholly made of calcium carbonate, you're going to have a lot of carbonate, and so you're going to have high, high pH soils. And conversely, Rock types yielding soils that don't have much carbonate, granite, say, or slate, or schist, they're going to have low pH soils, down below 7, 6 point something, uh, because they don't have the carbonate. And the big effect of that is on the nutrient availability, this accessibility thing I've already mentioned. And so the required nutrients might be there in the soil, but the pH may be such that the vine can't access them. So the more acid soils, sometimes the manganese and the phosphorus may be locked up and just not getting into the vine roots because the pH is too low. Possibly the more famous example is with limestone and, and uh, pH is around 7 or a bit more. And iron shuts down. The vine can't get the iron it needs. Not much, as I've emphasized, but it needs a bit of iron. And if it can't access that iron because the pH is too high, then the vine is going to start suffering from what's called chlorosis. And the leaves start to yellow. It's an obvious symptom. And any of your listeners that have been in France, where there happens to be a lot of limestone may have seen yellowing leaves or um, seen this chlorosis effect. The grower will be trying to correct it, but sometimes I've seen yellowing leaves. That's chlorosis. So the vine isn't performing at its optimum because it can't get the iron because the pH is too high. So it swings around about. Limestone has advantages for growing vines. It's well-drained, as I already indicated, but a downside is the risk of pH too high and not accessing certain nutrients of which iron is the big one. So that's the main thing. There's a, there's a famous diagram that shows how the different nutrients vary in availability with pH. Pity we're not doing this visually. I could show it. Uh, yes. It's right. It's in your book. I can put a link up. Yes. <laughs> it's, in my, it's in my book. It's not in color in the book. But um, 
But that shows how different nutrients come and go. So there's an optimum just below seven. And, um, well, most geologists aren't going to hit that on the nub, but the grower will try to modify things, add lime or whatever, to, to, to get in that window. But that's the big thing about pH, nutrient availability. So is, is it easier to acidify or deacidify soil? Or does, is it not as simple as that? It's easier to deacidify because you simply add lime. I add lime in my garden here in West Wales. It's kind of acidic. So I buy bags of lime and just spread it on. And certain certain crops need, uh, I mean, this brings it into rootstocks and vine, but certain rocks need uh, lots of lime, the brassicas, for example. So that's an easy thing. You just buy your lime and spread it on. And that will um, that will up the pH. Going the other way is, is trickier. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, well, so I wanted to ask you a little bit more about um, about you know drainage and, and what people can do in terms of water availability. Is there much that people can do to alter the soil for it? I mean, I, I, uh, I'm well, organic content seems to be a big one. Um, what's the you know what are the big things for you as a geologist? Well. No, the two big things are what I've already said. Sure. Put in hidden drain. Yeah. Um, you could add sand and grit and things like that. Yeah, the organic material will tend to in- improve the, the drainage. But the trouble there is the organic material is a good provider of nitrogen. And while for many crops, that's a great thing. Put in the compost, put in the animal manure, and you'll get great yields of spinach and sweet corn and lettuce and all these greedy feeders. You put in these kinds of things too much with grapevines, they will take up too much nitrogen. You'll get too much canopy. The leaves will grow, shading the, the clusters of grapes. And um, it will put on foliage as opposed to concentrating the grapes. So soils famously in good vineyards look poor. They look barren. They look stony. How can things grow in that? Ah, but vines can because their nutritional needs are very modest. They can get what they want in that poor soil, but not too much. And if you start putting in too much nitrogen yielding organic matter, then you're not going to get good grapes. So um, adding humus to improve the drainage is going to be a bit risky with grapevines. Great for some other crops, but no, that's not the way to do it for grapevines in general. Um, so I would say that just put, physically putting in grapes, uh, drains is going to be the thing. And it's one reason why vineyards on hill slopes are often favored because slopes, obviously, because of gravity, tend to drain well. So, um, that's, um, that's how you do the drainage. Do I, have I answered the question? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah I think so. <laughs> Um, so the next one's going to be a little bit controversial, but it's one of these that, um, <laughs> that, that various people have asked about. But uh, How helpful do you find the term minerality in wine tasting as a wine lover and a vine grower and as a geologist? Well, it's obviously useful. It wouldn't, have, wouldn't be so common. It's, 
<laughs> Every other tasting note seems to involve <laughs> the word mineral. These days, I've got to say that once again, you know, I, as I said way back at the beginning, I, I got interested in wine oh, back in the late 1960s. That's how old I am. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and I bought books. I've got piles of books from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And I look at them, soil's barely mentioned. And certainly minerals and minerality isn't mentioned. It's all happened. It's all exploded in the last 20 years, give or take. And minerality, certainly, there are plots in certain articles of how it's rocketed in use from virtually nothing to, whoa, being uh, everywhere. So it's obviously a useful descriptor. And uh, I wouldn't deny that. I think I would use it very cautiously myself. But I can see its use. There's uh, a lot of the controversy comes from, well, what does it mean? And, and people can't agree. Does it involve reductive winemaking, sulfur-bearing compounds, certain acids maybe, succinic acids have been implicated. There are lots of articles about this kind of thing. Scientists find it very difficult to get to grips with the, <laughs> with the phenomenon if people can't even agree what it is. You would think, in principle, well, you get some wines and some tasters, let's see which ones have minerality, which ones don't, then take them away and analyze them and see what the mineral wines have that the others don't. Well, it doesn't work because tasters can't agree on which ones are mineral and which ones are not. And um, I've been involved in a couple of technical papers uh, showing how people using the word mineral, well, it varies from culture to culture. The French use it in a different way to the Swiss, who use it in a different way to the New Zealanders. Some people think of it as a um, aroma. Uh, uh, some people think of it as a taste. A lot of people think of it as a mouthfeel or combination of things. Incidentally, if any of your listeners want to um, access any of my papers, send me an email. I'm sure you can give my email address. Mm -hmm. I'd be glad to give copies of papers on, on, on this kind of thing. So scientifically, we don't know what it is, and we're not getting much further because people can't agree what minerality is. But nevertheless, perhaps because of this vagueness, people find it useful. The other thing that's often implied is just lack of other things, lack of fruit and whatever. And I suppose that's the way I would use it. If it's not obviously floral and fruity and so on, then, well, yes, it's mineral, but I'd be wary of using it uh, myself. And I've got a, a, a big reason for this, and it takes me back to your question of um, why people like the idea of uh, vineyard geology influencing wine taste. And this is to do with the words we use to try and describe taste and communicate what we're tasting. <laughs> Difficult, as you, we all know. And so often we have to resort to metaphor. We usually don't think about it, but when we say a wine is, is I'm getting black currants, or I'm getting um, grass clippings or forest floor or something like this, well, these are metaphors. Pretty obviously, as soon as you think about it, everybody knows <laughs> nobody has put grass clippings in the wine. 
And obviously there's no forest floor in the wine, that's absurd. But we use these words because they are good comparators. We're getting a sensation that reminds us of these things. People know what we mean. Oh yeah, I see what you mean, forest floor. They're metaphors. And they're just these conceptual comparisons. Until we use these earthy words of which mineral is one. And all this metaphor thing goes out the window. Ah, well, this is different. I'm getting mineral because these are coming from the vineyard. I'm getting flint because it's come from the soil. I'm getting granite because it was grown on granite soil. And suddenly it's all direct. As soon as that tasting term has got an earthy feel about it. And, and I would argue, well, this cannot be, it can't work like that. Let's treat these words simply as metaphors, like all the other tasting terms we use. So I've no objection to saying that wines are flinty, or I'm getting slate or graphite or whatever. Well, I'm less happy with graphite because I don't know what it means. I can see what flinty conveys something of sharpness or edginess or something. But uh, graphite, what does, I don't know. Um, but that's another story. Um, let's just uh, treat these as uh, metaphors and then, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm happy using uh, these words as long as we use them in that way and don't suddenly say, ah, yeah, but it's uh, it's coming from the soil. That term um, isn't going to work. Maybe I should say, Bob, what I think is the fundamental reason why it won't work. Yeah? Yeah, 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 please do, go on. Rocks and the geological minerals of which they are made, by geological minerals, I mean quartz and feldspar and mica and things like this, these aggregate together to make the solid, rigid aggregates that we call rock. All these things are insoluble. They don't dissolve in water. Obviously, that's why we build with stone, you know? The oldest man-made constructions we have are stone. Stonehenge, for example. Obviously, it doesn't dissolve in the rainwater and stuff. It wouldn't be there. So um, the slate roof's been there 200 years. Clearly, slate doesn't dissolve in water, given the, the weather we have in West Wales. So these things don't dissolve. And there are two big repercussions of that for us. Firstly, it means the vines can't take these things up. You can't get in the vine system. Vine roots can only take in water or liquid or anything dissolved in the water. That's how it gets these nutrients, the iron and stuff that I talked about before. It's dissolved in the, in the soil water. But if the rocks and minerals can't dissolve, then they can't get in the vine roots. So they can't get in the vine and they can't get in the grape juice and can't get in the wine. So this whole idea that the, in the wine, yeah, the vine has taken up flint, taken up slate, Taking up minerals, it won't work because those things can't get in the vine system because they don't dissolve. Vine roots can only take in water. And the other repercussion is it also means these things don't have any taste anyway. <laughs> Our taste receptors, uh, taste buds, if you will, can only deal with liquids. We can only taste liquids. Okay, there are some solids that are so highly soluble, they, they have a taste. 
Salt and sugar are the obvious ones. We pop some salt in our mouth, well, it instantly starts to dissolve in our saliva, so we taste soil. But rocks and minerals <laughs> couldn't be more different in terms of solubility. They don't dissolve. And so we can't taste them. Sure, uh, this often misleads people. If you pick up a pebble and lick it, you might think you get some taste. That's the organic material that's filming it, the yeasts, the spores, the bacteria that settle on these things straight away, and they can generate a taste, aromatic chemicals that taste. And famously, when it rains, these aromatic chemicals come in the air, and we can taste, mm, yeah, shower of rain, I'm getting a smell in the air. This is all scientifically quite well understood how it works, but it's nothing to do with the actual rock or stone or pebble or anything on which this organic material is resting. If you think about it, if you get this, this smell in the air with rain, it doesn't matter whether you're walking on a beach, on tarmac, on concrete, on granite, so it, it's not the, it doesn't make any difference because it's the organic material you're smelling. So uh, for that reason, these things don't have any taste. So basically because rocks and minerals don't dissolve, they can't get in the vine system, they have no taste, and so that's one very basic reason why I keep saying, well, this idea of tasting geology in the wine just isn't going to work. In fact, if you think about it, this insolubility thing, even if somehow slate did magic its way into the finished wine, like people like to say about Moselle wine, say, you'd see little specks of slate floating about in the, <laughs> in the wine, which it, obviously is absurd because slate doesn't dissolve. So it can't be there. It's a perception. It's a metaphor. And as long as we stick with that, then I'm perfectly happy to describe Moselle wines as being slaty. But let's not imply anything literal about it. Okay. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, look, this one, well, I wasn't planning on asking this, and I, I don't actually remember you discussing it in your book, but um, certainly with things like one of the biodynamic preparations, they make a solution of quartz. Um, I mean, what do you think is going on there? Is that, um, is that scientifically plausible in any way? No. 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 <laughs> that's, uh, I, like, I like the direct answers. That's good. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, things come in fashions in, in the wine world and while it's astonishing just how biodynamics has taken off it is as you know very very fashionable we have to be careful to distinguish between biodynamics and organic methods often they're blurred together biodynamic is always oh, just like organics but a bit more organic well no it isn't organic viticulture is scientifically based it's rational it's um, more costly, so whether it's a good commercial thing to do is a, is, a, is a commercial judgment. But it's based in science, and there's no question it's good for the environment, it's good for soil quality, good for the microbiota in the soil, and there's decent evidence that it might actually produce better tasting wines, possibly through the microbiology. So um, organics, yeah, that's okay. But when you get into biodynamics, then the key difference, although it does subsume a lot of organic principles, are these, oh, dare I say, voodoo aspects, the relation to mysterious cosmic energies. 
And these preparations in homeopathic quantities that you mentioned, like the silica things, you know, you have to energize them, whatever that means, stirring them 21 ways the sun goes around, whatever it all is. Um, that is not rational. That is not scientific. And so those very aspects that separate biodynamics from organics are, are not based on rationality. And so they're not scientific. And that's why I gave you that uh, abrupt answer. Let me hasten to add, though, that if you're going to go down this biodynamic route, and obviously it appeals to a lot of people, I tend to think people who are more spiritually inclined, you know, and let's face it, there are a lot of people around that believe in ghosts and read their stars, their horoscope, you know, they like this. So if you're, if you're inclined to, well, no, there's no to life than just science, uh, then yeah, you're going to like it. You're going to grow your vines with passion because you feel you're doing the right thing. And the most of the biodynamic wines that I've tasted, I've been very good. Got to say that. But I don't think they're good because of the biodynamics, because of the um, cosmic energies and the mysterious preparations. They're good because of the attention to detail, the care, the extra passion that the grower has put into things all along. And it pays off in that respect. But uh, I wouldn't want to kid myself that it's rooted in anything scientific. I, I, I can't go along with the with the cosmic energies and the um, mysterious potions. But there we are. Well, there's one thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, and I, I know in the sort of preamble emailing, you said, oh, this is more about marketing. But I sort of wanted to do it from a, well, partly from a conceptual point of view as well. Um, I mean, what to what, oh, well, to what, uh, to what extent do you think the concept of terroir actually exists? And then further from that, how should it be used in positioning and marketing of wines? Oh, okay. Well, it- it certainly exists. I have no dif- difficulty at all with the concept. To me, it's self-evident. Uh, I mean, like I said, I'm a, I'm a gardener. I know that certain plants do better in some parts of the garden than others. Uh, and certain uh, similar fruit trees always do better here than there. Um, and so the idea that the grapevines do better here than there, the, the fruit is always better here than there, yeah, this is terroir. Um, and to me, it's the sum total of all the factors operating at a given site. And they're bound to be different from place to place. And it shows through in the resulting growth. I think just to digress a moment, I think there's a temptation. It's going back to the importance of vineyard soil. We look at a, shall we say, a slope covered in, in, in vines, and uh, we we know that the wines produced from this part of the slope differ from that part of the slope. Ooh, why is this? It's all one even slope, so the climate's all the same. Well, oh, look, the soil's different. The soil here is red something, and here it's grey something. It's the soil that's doing it, and off we go with the vineyard geology thing again. Well, yeah, the soil might be different, but as I've already said, nobody seems to know how it does it beyond what I've said about water and that. It's this assumption that the invisible factors to do with microbiology, to do with climate are the same, I think, that's wrong. And where 
the time and trouble and expense has been taken to install sensors closely spaced all across these vineyards, it's always been astonishing just how variable, say, the ultraviolet light intensity is, the airflow is, and just a few bushes or a change in the shape of the vine row or a stone wall or something can change the airflow. This changes the humidity, it changes the temperature, and in fact, all these climatic factors are varying far more than we would ever have guessed. And we know that these kinds of factors do influence how the grape ripens and what flavor precursors develop in the grape. But we can't see them. And they sound awfully technical and um, not very interesting to read about. So we go back to the soil because that's romantic. But um, it's these things coming together that makes the terroir of a particular site. And I can just accept that. So, okay, the terroir is different from the terroir there. I don't have a, a problem with it. I think a lot of the controversy arises through two things. Some people insist on equating terroir with the ground, with the earth, with the soil. I suppose they think terroir is the same as the French terre, the ground. Well, it isn't. Never has been in French. Uh, and if you do restrict terroir to the soil, then you're back with the problem I'm talking about. Oh, no, it's not that important. And terroir won't be that important. If you're going to take that, I think, unhelpfully restrictive definition of terroir. But if you use it more expansively, like I'm saying, or the overall factors, then yeah, then, then I don't have a problem with it for the reasons I've just said. The other problem is that, okay, that's what it is, is all these factors. Which factors are more important than others? And so now, and this is a scientific inst instinct to deconstruct it, well, is climate more important than microbiome? Is temperature more important than you know? That's where we get into difficulties because it's far too complicated. Let's just leave it as the sum total. And I think these constituent factors are so variable, varying importance from place to place, varying importance from time to time. So one factor might be more important in a certain part of the season than another part of the season maybe more important in this place than that place. So to try and generalize just isn't going to work. And I, and I do think, just to say one more thing about climate, we do tend to simplify with this one word, climate. Ah, there's all sorts of things subsumed in that word. I mean, say temperature, say, familiar thing. Oh, yeah, the temperature in climate. Well, yeah, temperature. Temperature where? Temperature at the vine roots? Temperature at the soil surface? Temperature where the fruit is ripening, or the overall average, or what? Temperature midday, midnight, daily temperature, daily average, seasonal average, and, and you know, even temperature is an incredibly complicated thing. And when you add it, add in with all the other things, then all these climatic factors all interacting, influencing each other, varying from place to place through time, then it's just fearsomely complicated. So even as a scientist, I say, hands up, we're not going to get to grips with that. 
ever. Maybe someday, but right now it's far too complicated. So let's just take terroir as the sum total and use it as a pragmatic way to sum up the, this site and why it's different from that site. And for me, in that sense, as I say, it's uh, self-evident and useful. Fair enough. Well, look, so I wasn't really planning on asking this, but in terms of wine communication, wine writing, how scientifically literate do you think it is in general? I don't think it is, to be honest. I don't think it is. <laughs> Should it be more, or, or does it not matter, or, or what do you think? I don't think people should um, go too far down the route of kiddom, you know, of just pretending this is happening and that's happening, like the geology. Oh, let's pretend that the um, I'm tasting granite in the wine. I think that can go too far, but I can see why most readers say don't want to read about scientific things. They um more intrigued with the um romance of wine and and the personalities and the places and uh, let's face it, the labels the Parker points and things like this. Not that many readers want to bother themselves with technical things. So I I'm, I wouldn't want to say that uh, wine writings should be more scientific, but let's not pretend in them things that are not based in science. But it's it's difficult to pick up, and this really is why I wrote <laughs> the book you keep re kindly referring to. You know, I, I would read things in wine magazines, say, and especially on the web, <laughs> has to be said, mentioning geology. Oh, no. It's not like, oh, there's some outrageous things. Oh, my God. And then one day I thought, well, instead of grimacing, and I can see why people can get things wrong, because there's no way to to get it right. I mean, if you go to a geology textbook, it's nothing about wine. You go to a wine textbook, there's nothing about geology. So where is the person who wants to check about what slate is and, and so on, but well, how can they do it? I thought, well, it's up to me. Like I said at the beginning, the coming together of those strands and serendipity. Well, I've got to do it. I've got to try and explain how geology works in the vineyard and what geology is in the context of wine, because there isn't anything like that. And that's what drove me to put together the book and although it's been well received, I think, that some people didn't work from heavy going. I tried to make it reasonable. But if you're going to try and explain technical things like pH, say, or whatever, then you can't avoid a certain amount of technicality. So it, it ties in with my answer to your question. Yeah, people should um, know about science or not pretend otherwise, but they don't want to read about it. And I like to think my book is there if someone wants to refer to it. All the main geological terms are highlighted. So if you want to check out what slate is, or granite, or flint, well, you can easily find out basically what it is, hopefully with authority. And um, that's what drove me to put the book together, because it's there uh, if people want to find out more about it. But I don't expect your average wine enthusiasts to get too heavy in the um, scientific parts of things, but I, I hope they don't pretend things like the literal meaning of minerality, say, that uh, don't have a scientific 
basis. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're coming up to the end of uh, end of our time, but there's one question I always like to end on, um, which is, what are the major causes of optimism in the wine world today? Either from a geological point of view, or from a consumer point of view, or a wine grower. What are you, what are you optimistic about? Oh, well, I'm a scientist, <laughs> and I don't think we should forget that because of science, the standard of winemaking has improved incomparably in the last in my lifetime when i started drinking wines you know it was a major gamble when he took the cork out <laughs> whether the wine would be drinkable there were some awful wines there was dreadful wine make i remember the first winery i ever went to in france i won't say where it was and it smelled of vinegar and i even then i thought this isn't right the hygiene oh god you shouldn't have acetic acid in a, in a, in a wine cup. Uh Well, I think that kind of thing has been vastly improved on through scientific understanding. The need for hygiene, say, it's an obvious one. <laughs> it's like in medicine, isn't it? Hospitals, you know, hi, uh, you've got to have hygiene. And all the other things that are taken for granted now to do with vine management in the vineyard, to do with vinification, the handling of yeasts and rootstocks you mentioned and how it, you know they've just there's some wonderful things for wine such that it's i think it's quite hard to get a bad wine now you might not like it but it's going to be well made and you don't get the flaws you used to get and if you do get a flaw the winemaker will be on it be aware of it so i think this application of science is going to improve wines yet more and there are lots of things that need to be improved, finer points of this, that, and the other. So <laughs> this is a maybe a, a very biased scientific point of view, but I think because so many young enthusiasts are going to university now and doing doing courses in analogy and viticulture, the standard of, of vineyards of wine cellars can only get better and better especially in those new countries on the scene, like England, say. I was reading about Holland yesterday, you know, because we've got this technical know-how. So I think we've got a, a rich future of splendid wines from all sorts of non-classical parts of the world to look forward to, thanks to science. <laughs> Well, that's a lovely note to end on. Uh, anyone who's listening, if you're the sort of person who's listening to this podcast, you definitely need to get Alex's book if you don't have it already. It's got sentences in it like serpentinite is a beguiling rock, which is like, how can you not love that? Um, so yeah, it's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it an is. absolute joy to read. It really is. Um, and uh, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, thank you so much for your time and, and coming on. It's mm. been uh, a real, real pleasure to talk to you. Oh, it's a pleasure for me, Bob. I love talking about this kind of stuff. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs>